Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 299. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. On this week's show, Absence Makes the Heart Grow Fonder, stories about communication and long-distance relationships. Long-distance relationships are hard, ask anyone. Except maybe Kenyan men. I bet they're pretty good at them. But most other people find it difficult or frustrating to be in a relationship with someone they can't see or be near. If men are from Mars and women are from Venus, both individuals must find common ground and take joy in the shared experience of apparently being astronauts. Although if you're an astronaut in a relationship and you skip out on the opportunity to say, look, I just need some more space, You're wasting everybody's time. Let's start things off this week with a 100-word story. This week's Drabble is called Dear John by Rachel K. Jones. Rachel lives and lurks in Athens, Georgia, where she's pursuing her degree at the University of Georgia. She's written three unpublished novels and plans to write more. This is her second Drabble on the show. By the time you read this, you will have found my body. Don't grieve, I'm not dead. I've just moved out. It's not anything you did. It was the right time. I'm worried about you, though. You don't have many friends apart from me. So someday I'll visit. I'll knock. You'll invite me in for coffee. And after a long chat, I'll explain everything and will laugh. But you won't recognize me in my new skin. I could be old or young, male or female, Greek or Israeli or Japanese. Better offer coffee to anyone who knocks, just in case. That leads us into our feature story this week, The Revelations of Morgan Stern by Christine Yant. Miss Yant is a science fiction and fantasy writer and assistant editor for Lightspeed magazine. Her fictions appeared in magazines such as Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Shimmer, and Daily Science Fiction, and in anthologies The Way of the Wizard, Year's Best Science Fiction and Fantasy 2011, and Armored. She lives on the central coast of California with two writers, an editor, and assorted four-legged nuisances. Follow her on Twitter at Christy Yant or her website at inkhaven.net. 
This story first appeared in the very well put together Shimmer Magazine, January issue of this year. So without further ado, we bring you The Revelations of Morgan Stern by Christine Yant. July 31st, your birthday, and I can't reach you. I've been trying all day, but the cell networks are down, the internet's down. I even tried a payphone, there are two left in town that I know of, and I collected all of my change and walked to the 76 in the village. It was on fire. I watched it for a while from a distance as it painted a brown, toxic streak across the sky. It was a long walk back to the house, or what's left of it. My feet hurt, and it was too quiet. The back of the house fell in, but I managed to climb into the kitchen and recover a few things. Tonight, we would have celebrated your birthday over video chat, the best we could do so far apart. I have no way to tell you that I salvaged a donut and lit a candle and sang to you. I don't know if you're alive or dead. I thought it was just an earthquake. We've been waiting for the big one my entire life, so what else would I think it was? Just the inevitable result of tectonic pressure, slippage, two goliaths moving past each other, barely a shrug in geologic terms, but enough to rattle the life out of us. I thought that an earthquake like that, one that could bring down a town that had known it was coming forever, surely that must be the worst of it. I was wrong. We didn't see the worst of it until after the sun went down, when furious angels filled the sky from where I don't know, and with them the screams that broke the silence. I wonder if you're safe. I wonder how far they can fly. August 2nd. I didn't know what to take from the house. I suppose it was stupid, but the first thing I thought of was your birthday present. It was a stupid, sentimental thought, but when I opened it, I had to laugh. If there's anything I need to take with me, it's your birthday present. This isn't at all how we imagined it, is it? We talked about this sort of thing a lot, sometimes joking, sometimes serious. The trouble the world was in, and how it would eventually end. A biological accident, some virus cooked up in a lab, nuclear war, maybe a meteor strike. We'd look at the stars during those rare and precious times together and talk about how it might happen and what we would do if it did. So for your birthday, I started to put together a survival kit as a romantic, silly joke in case of apocalypse. We joked about the nonsensical ways, zombies, aliens, the rapture. I don't think that's what this is. They don't seem to discriminate the way I would expect the God of the Old Testament to do. So far, I've been safe. Luck seems to be on my side and I'm on my way to you. 
My fourth grade California history lessons will finally pay off. I'm going to spend tonight in an old adobe mission, then walk south down El Camino Real from mission to mission during the day until I reach Los Angeles. It's quiet again, except for a sort of background noise, like a radio or a conversation I'm not near enough to hear. There's something familiar and almost comforting about it. August 4th. I only got as far as Summerland. Is it weird to say that I'm enjoying this part? Everything around me is in ruins. The survivors are grouped together in terrified clusters. Some of them are already talking about rebuilding. I try to avoid them as much as I can. But walking this stretch of the freeway is peaceful. The dolphins seem unaware of what's happened. They swim just offshore as they always have on placid days. The air is cool, the sun is bright, the water the teal of early summer, and I know that this is the last time it's going to be easy. Once I get past Ventura, the way will be treacherous. The city scares me. Crossing through the Mojave scares me more. But all that's important is that I get to you. I'm going to Wichita, like we said we would. It was a joke, I know, but it's all I can think of to do. I'm going, and I hope you are too. I hope you remember where we said we'd meet, what the place was called. I've only seen a couple of angels today, black against the clear blue sky. I think they mostly come out at night. August 7th. I am so tired. I've only just started and I'm already so tired and scared for reasons that I'm not sure I'm even ready to commit to paper. Reasons that have nothing to do with the end of the world. Suddenly I'm a child again, talking to imaginary friends and believing for all the world that they are talking back. It's nothing, just the exhaustion. Tomorrow will be better. August 16th, Barstow, California. There it is, the desert. It scares me in ways I can't even articulate. I know what it is to burn for a day, to have our nearest star turn from friend to enemy, to be blistered and nauseated. For a day? What about a week? Two weeks? I don't know how long it will take. Water, shade, sunblock, and getting across that expanse as fast as I possibly can are what's on my mind right now. If anything is going to finish me, it'll be the angels or the desert. I haven't survived one just to let the other kill me. You're on the other side of the desert, or at least I hope you are. I have to assume you're there, safe, waiting for me, or there won't be a point. I stole a bike in the valley. Is it stealing? I don't know. It has a patch kit and an odometer. I haven't ridden much since I was a teenager, and I have never ridden more than 40 miles in a day. Today, I'm going to try for a hundred. I need to get across this wasteland as fast as I can. I'm pretty sure my life depends on it. August 17th. They came out at sunset, just as I was getting ready to ride. There must have been survivors there after all, though I didn't run into any. The lack of bodies has been a puzzle until now. 
They take them, I think. I could see some of them carrying people, silhouetted against the dusk-lit sky, like a hawk carrying a mouse in its talons. Where? Why? I don't know. Barstow is in flames. I can still see the glow from here. All I could do was ride as hard as I could and not look back, not look up. August 18th. I think I may have figured out where they came from. They certainly look like biblical angels, so I'd assume they came from above us, somewhere, even if it doesn't make sense. The air teeming with impossible creatures that set things on fire with their touch and carry people off into the sky. It doesn't make sense either, but tonight at sunset I waited and I watched. They don't come from above. They come from below. Maybe you knew that already. Maybe it was obvious the way the earth was split open here in Arizona, just as in California. Maybe it's out where you are too. The earth cracked and broken and soot black angels emerging from the heart of the planet every night. August 20. The tire on the bike just couldn't take another patch, so I'm back on foot. I should have told you back then when we were forming our plan that 25 miles a day on foot is about the maximum. I learned this in fourth grade as every kid did educated in California. It's how they decided where to put the missions, always a day's walk from each other. From the Santa Barbara mission to the mission Santa Inez is 25 miles. From Santa Inez to La Purisima is 25 miles. I knew that. We each have 1,500 miles to cross. It's going to take a long time. I should have told you. September 1st. It's too hot to travel by day, and by night there are the angels. I've been trying to split the difference by starting out late in the afternoon before sunset and going as long as I can until I spot one of them and have to find shelter. Shelter's usually a rock, and usually already claimed by the non-human residents of the desert. It's a good thing I'm not afraid of snakes. I'm down to my last few looted power bars, and I don't really know how far I have left to go. I have a lash of blood blisters across three fingers of my right hand, and I cut the hell out of my left. It hurts to hold the pen, but I've got nothing else to do. I used to think being alone would be great, with time to do nothing but think, and, and it was at first. But now the sound of my own voice grates on me, and I'm tired of my own thoughts. I wish I could talk to you. You always had new thoughts, fresh thoughts I'd never thought of before. But they still seem to settle in my mind as if they belonged to me all along. I've seen nothing but the brown of sand and stone by day, and the world in grayscale at night. I can't wait to see something green again that isn't a cactus. Did I ever tell you that I used to hear voices when I was a kid? I think it started after my parents died. Trauma does strange things to a person's mind. They were sort of comforting, those voices, even though they never made sense. In my memory, they sound a little like my mom and dad. They made me feel like I wasn't really alone in the world after all, just like you always made me feel. 
I decided at some point that they were the voices of the animals that lived in the ground, and I would lay on my belly in the yellow grass and whisper my life into their burrows, my hopes and my dreams, my anger and pain, and I would listen to them answer with meaningless sounds, the language, I thought, of rabbits and ground squirrels. I must not be holding it together as well as I thought I was. I have to face it. I'm hearing them again. There are fewer angels now. I only saw three last night, though they were close and I thought for certain I was moments away from being carried off by those burning hands. But only three. That's good. Maybe it's almost over. September 15th. I'm in Texas. I met a guy on the road, maybe your age. He has a horse. He offered to let me ride it. I declined. My feet feel like they're on fire all the time, but at the end of the world it seems unwise to accept favors from strangers. He says his name is Brian. I'm not sure why I don't believe him. There's no reason to lie about our names out here. Maybe it's that superstitious part of me that grew up on fairy tales that says I shouldn't give him my own real name. Maybe it's in our blood, the rules of magic. I think it's a good instinct in these strange times. I told him my name was Morgan. We've been traveling together for about three days now. Some things are easier, like finding food. He's good at that. I had time to study the survival book. Why didn't I put fishing line in the apocalypse box? So between the two of us, I think we're not going to starve. I don't like him though. He's an arrogant prick. I was starved for company, but now I just wish he'd shut up. <laughs> we used to joke about how someday the world would be ours. It seemed so possible, didn't it? Everything we attempted together just worked. We were going to be together permanently soon. Instead, the world is empty, and we're further apart than we've ever been. September 17th. How many miles to Wichita? Three score and ten. Can I get there by candlelight? Yes, there and back again. How many, really? Too many. I'd give anything for a magic ring or a pair of seven-league boots right now. September 19th. They took Brian. We had left the road to stay safer at night, and I was off tying the horse. Two of them came from above with a rush of wings and a sound like... a sound like voices. A thousand voices. Voices that resonated in my bones. I ran like hell into the trees. By the time I stopped, I was totally disoriented. I waited for daylight. When I found the camp again, the treetops around our camp were burnt black as an angel's wing. The horse where I left her, but Brian was gone. Apart from the ring of charred trees, there was no other sign of them. Again, I'm reminded of the fairy tales we grew up on, and I wondered if it wasn't the angels that inspired the tales of fire-breathing dragons. How long have they been here? And where have they been hiding? September 23rd. 
According to the map, I'm now 17 towns away from you. I shouldn't think that way. You may not be there. You may have died that first week or on the road on your way to Wichita. I should probably assume you did. If you didn't, then you're an anomaly like I am. So many things that I didn't tell you. How far we can walk in a day, how long it will take to reach each other. That I hoped you would marry me, eventually. Now, that's a lie. I hoped that you would marry me soon. That I used to... hear voices, and that I had seen the angels before. Would it increase your chances of surviving them if you knew? Or would you have thought I was crazy and left me? Or thought I was crazy and tried to help me? Or would you believe me and live life a little more afraid the way that I did? There was a quake in 1978. I was at my friend's house in her bedroom on the second floor. The windows rattled, the whole house swayed. We could see the water sloshed out of the pool through her window. It wasn't much of a quake, not compared to what we just went through, but the experience terrified me. I guess I thought I was having a nightmare that night when it appeared in my window, black, except where the golden glow from its core leaked out through its eyes the webs between its fingers, its mouth. It just stared at me through the window and I could do nothing but stare back, afraid to move, afraid to scream, paralyzed in my seven-year-old fear. That was one of the many things you gave me that you didn't even know. I felt safe from them when I was with you. For the first time in my life, I finally felt safe. The nightmares didn't come when you were beside me. You know that feeling you get when you suspect that you've done something really profoundly wrong? That ice-water-sick feeling that drains the blood from your head and knocks you down to your knees, and you just hope it's a mistake, and believe on some level it must be, because you couldn't possibly have done something so wrong. I have that feeling tonight. I have to get to you. Please, please be alive. September 24th. Hundreds, I think. None at all for several nights, and now there are so many that they block out the stars. I can see their red gold glow. I smell smoke. I think they're looking for me. September 27th. They're watching me as I write this. I think the one closest to me used to be Brian. I see other faces that look familiar. Thank whatever gods there may be that none of them look like yours. I can hear the voices again, feel them. Their mouths don't move, but I'm certain it's them I'm hearing. Sometimes I think I can almost isolate one of them from the rest, but then it all becomes noise again, murmured nonsense. They aren't moving. They don't seem inclined to hurt me. They look like they're waiting. For what? For me to do something? For me to speak? To ask them what they are and what they want? September 28th. They're gone. The voices are gone and I can think again, move again, breathe again. Nothing changed all night. They stood there looking at me, waiting for what I'm... I'm not sure. 
The one I saw when I was a child did the same thing. It just looked at me, waiting. When I think back, it seems almost as if there was a look of expectation, like it thought I had been waiting for it. Memory is tricky, though, and the more you revisit a memory, the less accurate it becomes. We add details that weren't there, things that might have made sense but didn't really happen. So perhaps that's just what I'm doing, just trying to make, make it make sense. In my childish reasoning, I did the only thing I could do, the only thing you can do with the monster under your bed, or the boogeyman in your closet, or the angel at your window, with eyes like burning coals and a face like cooling embers. I told it to go away. It opened its mouth, and it seemed confused and almost disappointed. But it did what I said. It went away. They took Brian. They took everyone. Why didn't they take me? Why did the angel turn away, confused, all those years ago? The worst part of this for me is not the hunger, the exhaustion, or the loneliness. It's not the hardship or the fear. It's not even the fact that the world as we knew it has come to an end and all my nightmares have become real. It's the fact that I'm pretty sure it's all my fault. Every time I think of it, I'm dizzy and sick. I'm responsible. I summoned them all these years ago. I didn't know it, but that hardly matters now. Everyone in the world is dead or else transformed, which is as good as dead or maybe even worse. And it's my fault. I play with the knife from your birthday box and think about how much easier it would be to kill myself, get this over with, but I can't risk it. You may still be alive. For now, I better make the best time I can. The road here is tree-lined and shady. I suppose I'll know more when the sun goes down. Later. They brought me rabbits. A lot of them. The air is filled with the acrid smell of burnt hair from where they gripped them in their hands. They knew I was hungry. So I looked up how to skin an animal and did the best I could. I made a mess of it, and I can't say it tasted very good, but my head has stopped hurting and my stomach doesn't feel like it's trying to eat my backbone anymore. They've spread out a little this time, but they still have me surrounded. I'm considering just trying to walk through them and continue down the road. I think they would let me. The sound of voices comes and goes. It's almost like trying to tune an old radio with knobs and dials. If I move a certain way, I'm overwhelmed by them. But if I tilt my head just a little sometimes, one will come clear for a moment. But then I shake my head because what I hear them saying is too unbelievable. And I lose it again. They never take their eyes off me. I think they're waiting for me to tell them what to do. September 29th. I couldn't stand it. The way they were looking at me, I just, I don't know, I broke. I screamed at them. I threw rocks. They just stood there, stoic, waiting. So I left. They stepped aside to let me pass, and then they followed me. So I screamed again, and I told them, stop. 
And they did. They stopped in their tracks, the grass burning beneath their feet. I kept walking, looking back every few yards to make sure they were still there. They never moved from where I told them to stay. Eventually, I turned back. I think I understand. Now I'm the one watching them. September 30. They tell me that you're alive. I'm sending one of them ahead with this notebook and the box. They heard me all those years ago. They listened to my fears and my dreams. They heard the anger of a child who had lost everything, telling them how the world would be if he were in charge. No one would ever leave him because there would be no one else in the world, just him and the people he loved. They were trapped with no one but me to tell them about the world above. And now that they're free, they have given me what I said I wanted. Don't be afraid, love. Do not run. Their touch burns, and if you run, they will bring you back to me. We made so many plans, you and I. We always felt invincible together, like we could do anything at all. I always said I would give you the world if I could. I couldn't have known that it would one day be mine to give. ending in a story very, very much about endings. Here's a little background about the story from Christie's blog relating to apocalypses and her long-distance relationship with John Joseph Adams, editor of the fantastic magazine Lightspeed. Christie says, John and I started dating in the spring of 2010. We were mutually smitten, thoroughly geeked out, and very, very happy, except for one problem. He lived in Jersey and I lived in California, 3,000 miles apart. Thank the gods for Skype, is what I'm saying. Zombie preparedness and apocalypse plans are kind of a staple topic when you're dating a guy who edits zombie stories for a living, and it was only a matter of time before we came up with our own. The nearby prison might be a good bet, counterexamples from The Walking Dead notwithstanding. The Air Force Base was just a stone's throw away. It's an agricultural community, produce would be plentiful for a while, and the local mission was already set up for no-tech lifestyles, complete with mill, forge, and looms, perfect for rebuilding society when the crisis passed. Food, shelter, weapons, future restoration, check. But those 3,000 miles presented an additional problem. What if the apocalypse occurred while we were apart, when the cell networks went down? How would we find each other? Certainly we needed an additional contingency plan. So employing the magic of Google and Google Maps, we made one. 
It turned out that Wichita, Kansas was almost exactly equidistant from his home in Jersey and mine in California. Wichita. Huh. Who knew? Summer arrived. John's birthday was approaching, and because of our schedules, it was looking like we were going to be spending it apart. That made me super sad, and I wanted to do something special for him, something that would give him a sense of my presence, even though I couldn't be there. Contents of our apocalypse box. Postcard, photoshopped and trimmed with craft scissors of our agreed-upon meeting place. Heavily weathered AAA map. I left it outside for a few nights. The fog and dogs did the rest, with my route marked. Compass, waterproof matches, space blanket, multi-tool, all-weather notebook, pencil, sharpie, mini maglite, U.S. Army survival guide, small, heavily weathered memo book filled with writings and two pictures of us. It's the notebook that was the scariest because I was the neoist of neo-prose and I was dating an editor and I wrote him a story for his birthday. It felt like an incredibly brave thing to do at the time. The notebook was part diary, part ongoing love letter from an alternate Christie to an alternate John. It began on the day the world ended, which was also his birthday, and documented her journey to Wichita, where she hoped that he would be alive and waiting for her. And now it's been published in Shimmer. Ah, oh, sweet idea for a loved one. An apocalypse box. Hopefully it'll never have to come in handy, but I hope it does if it does. Dystopian romance. At first glance, it's a complete mismatch. Romance is all about flowers and happiness, butterflies in your tummy and baby talk. Not so much the swift and horrific annihilation of mankind, the breakdown of society, being raped repeatedly by roving bands of motorcyclists or chained near a dirty mattress in some cannibal's moist and fetid basement. But when you delve deeper, combining the two concepts makes wicked sense. To come out on top of both the struggle to survive and the struggle to love, what do you need? Trust and hope. This especially applies to long-distance relationships. The idea that love and romance triumph over everything, even tragedy, is a powerful one. It's fun thinking about what will happen when the worst occurs, right? How will we survive? How will we govern and communicate? Post-apocalyptic books explore humanity's survival against impossible odds, which pretty much sums up falling in love with all its risks and rewards. Our transition from an old, comforting world to a crazy new and unfamiliar one, the danger, the excitement, the adaptation, the creepy angels of death and the motorcycle rapists, it all makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Either way, we hope you enjoyed this week's story. So we've got to take a week off to get things together for our big 300th episode slash Halloween special at the end of the month. Fortunately, those of you with Drabblecast B-side subscriptions can look forward to a fun, really out-there story called The Tribe by Daniel Vlasati, as well as some other cool premium content stuff coming down the feed to get you through the Drabblecast by week. Help support your favorite podcast. Sign up for an automatic 10 bucks a month subscription to the Drabblecast by clicking the glaring, guilt-inducing link on our webpage at www.drabblecast.org. Get more cool shit for your ears and your minds each month. We greatly appreciate the support. 
Otherwise, hey, start going through the Drabblecast archives. We've got 299 frickin' shows going all the way back to, what, early 2007 for you to listen to if you haven't already. All in easy-to-download 25-episode zip file chunks. All you have to do is go to Drabblecast.org, click on Downloads up in the nav bar, and boom, nearly 10 gigs of awesome stories right there for you. Have at it. Oh, hey, and while we're on the topic of appreciation, let's talk about this week's Drabblecast Kick-Ass Donor of the Week. Liz Bennett. Liz lives on a small farm in eastern Kansas with her husband of 34 years, Dave, and their six dogs, Jake, Sally, Buck, Dee Dee, Bear, and Lily. She enjoys gardening, sewing, reading, and listening to the Drabblecast, which is pretty awesome. She works in IT technical support and needs all the mindless relaxation she can get, she says, which is why she reads a lot of Regency fiction. Insert boo sound here. She'd like to give a shout out to her husband, who is often described as a pleasant gentleman. Ah, You know, for a week with angels erupting from the earth and annihilating most of humanity, this week's episode is turning out to be pretty darn mushy, isn't it? Much love, Liz. Thanks for the support. All right, moving on to our 100-character story winner this week, by Munzee. The tortured screams of the people dying in agony are muffled by thumping Swedish disco music here in my abattoir. Dancing Queen, indeed. Excellent. 100 character stories, not counting spaces. We call them twabbles, of course, and we pick one from our forums each week at forums.drabblecast.org and post it out on Twitter early, in addition to running it on the show. I really love our fan community over on the forums. So many creative, friendly weirdos over there doing cool stuff. You should really get involved if you aren't already. Also, if you have Twitter, follow the Drabblecast at the Drabblecast. All right, folks, that's our show this week. The Travelcast is, of course, brought to you with a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. If you have iTunes and you've never written the Travelcast to review on there, we'd be ever so appreciative if you did. Help out our visibility. If you have a blog, it's always cool to be mentioned if you enjoy what we do, or if you just have a friend, even if they live across the wasteland, tell them about the Drabblecast. Explain what a podcast is. Tell them it's free. Go ye and spreadeth forth the weird. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, the one and only Gerald Dye. Find out more about Gerald's awesome artwork at GeraldDye.com. That's Dye, D-Y-E. Our program this week is brought to you by managing editor Nikki Drayden, our submissions editor Nathan Lee, art director Bo Kyer, with additional help from Tom Baker, David Steffen, and David Carvin. We'll see you in about two weeks, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you, if anything's going to kill you, it'll be the angels or the desert. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.